On this PLU podcast, we're going to be posing a few questions to PLU professors Samuel Torvin and Beth Greek Palele about Martin Luther, the Holocaust, Lutheran higher education, and PLU's upcoming Powell Heller Conference for Holocaust Education. Dr. Torvin serves as a professor of religion and is the endowed chair in Lutheran studies at PLU. Dr. Greek Palele is an associate professor of history and the Curtis R. Mayer Chair in Holocaust Studies. Why does it make sense for a Lutheran university, in particular, to have such a long-standing and thorough commitment to Holocaust and genocide studies? This is the end of my first year uh, from uh, the experience of Pacific Lutheran University, and I came from a state university out in Ohio, and they were also very committed to having students learn about the Holocaust. But I think that there's a unique quality, a unique aspect uh, to Pacific Lutheran University, and part of it, I, I believe, deals with the school's mission, this idea of producing students who have thoughtful inquiry skills, who have critical thinking skills, uh, to be able to take on uh, the topic of Martin Luther and his uh, relationship with the Jewish community and how it evolved and really degenerated over the course of, of his lifetime. I think that uh, that helps students focus in and think about developing those critical thinking skills and then wondering about where has Lutheranism gone from, from Martin Luther concerning the Jews and their lies of 1543 and then moving forward. Uh, so I think it's a very unique environment uh, that helps uh, really students get into this topic, not just of the Holocaust, but then also into genocide studies, where they seem to be very interested. I know many of my students last year were involved in missionary work uh, in places in, such as Rwanda. And so it's a natural kind of tie-in for them to look at the topic of genocide in the classroom and then go and travel to these areas of the world that have recently experienced genocide and see how do we bring about reconciliation among the survivors and perpetrators. Uh, these are all kinds of the, the messy questions that students seem to really sink their teeth into at Pacific Lutheran. And that's something, at least from my experience being new to PLU, is a very unique one. The, the students that I taught at the previous institution were very good students, but they never really seemed to take the information that I was giving them a step further mm -hmm. and deal with public engagement with this idea of service to the larger community. I think there's another, I, I agree with you, I think there's another piece to it as well. It's part of the story of the history department at PLU. I'm a graduate of that department. Uh, Beth teaches in that department. Um, but there has been a steady stream over a long period of time of interest in German history. And so that interest really uh, uh, began in the 60s and 70s and developed over time right. uh, so that we find uh, people who've been coming at German history from many perspectives, right. but especially we became known for uh, the study of the Holocaust, exactly. and then that was extended into uh, and genocide I think, studies. Not to cut you off, but I think that it is a, a fantastic tradition where Pacific Lutheran University, from a German historian who specializes, such as myself, in the Holocaust, uh, was really put on the map years and decades mm. ago because of the work of Christopher Browning. Right. 
And once Christopher Browning, everyone knew Chris Browning, this preeminent author, writing book after book on the Holocaust is at Pacific Lutheran University. Mm -hmm. And those identities became intertwined. Um, and then to have Chris move on and have Bob Erickson, uh, who specializes in the role of the Protestant churches yeah. and complicity in the Holocaust, they've really established this really lengthy, decades-long tradition at PLU of uh, world-class scholars. And everyone who studies a Holocaust I, thinks of Pacific Lutheran University as a site where Holocaust and genocide studies are right on the money that here are these leading scholars uh, talking and, mm -hmm. and writing about this. I think another angle, too, on the question uh, is the apparent uh, paradox of a Lutheran university, which historically has been associated with Germany mm -hmm. and with Martin Luther, and many times his anti-Jewish writings, mm -hmm. the paradox of a Lutheran university being a cradle in which uh, the study of, holo the, of the Holocaust uh, can actually take place. Mm -hmm. So there is a major reporter with the New York Times who has uh, communicated with us at PLU saying, you're a very, very odd place <laughs> because you have a chair in Lutheran studies and right. you have a chair in Holocaust studies. Nobody else has that. Right. It's very uh, It's unique. very unusual. Yeah. We're the only place in North America that has the joining of those two kinds of chairs at, in which we come at that topic, the Holocaust and what led to it right. from different perspectives. So I think it adds to the richness of what exactly. our students are exposed to. Well, and I think that because this is a Lutheran university, it allows people to push the envelope and say, okay, now let's really delve into these difficult questions. And the great part of Lutheranism and then the downside of Martin Luther's anti-Jewish writings, yeah. right? And it does, it, yeah. it, it's a, a perfect environment for people to be able to take that time to have those courses in the Department of Religion and then come to history as well. Yeah. And then maybe go on to be a minor in one of those, those areas mm -hmm. because they've had that grounding in all these different topics and they can kind of pull that information together. Yep. For a lot of people, Martin Luther seems to be an historical figure known for specific actions and opinions that are remembered for being visionary and really admirable. But how should we remember his anti-Semitism? When I think about Martin Luther and the way he kind of went through these different periods in his life regarding his position and his thought on Jews, um, what I tend to think is that most of us as human beings are very complex people. And we have a whole variety of reasons why we make the decisions that we do. And to take part of Martin Luther and deny another part is to ignore him as an entire complete person, as a complete human being. And so I think that, you know, as upsetting as his anti-Semitism towards the very end of his life is, we still need to acknowledge that there's a whole other side to Martin Luther without sugarcoating, uh, but to acknowledge that people are, in fact, very complicated. And that's part of why people argue and fight, right, that I, I don't, don't want to know about his anti-Semitism. I want to know about the good pamphlet that he wrote in defense of the Jews. Um, but you want to be able to take people as they are. And you have to, at some point, be somewhat accepting of we all have flaws some of them are more tragic 
flaws than others. Uh, but we have to acknowledge that there is this complete human being standing before us and that we need to try to uh, at least examine why they might have written and thought the way that they did. I, I, uh, I, I agree with that. And I think I also use another angle. And that would be, uh, I want to ask the question, why do people change their minds? Uh, because we all change our minds on things. And those can be minor changes. They can be major changes. And each of them is going to have some kind of consequence. There will be some implication right. to that. Because, uh, to me, Luther is a very good case of this. Why does someone, as you said, who initially wants to say really good things about Jews, who actually rejects the code of civil law, which uh, legislated hatred of Jews, why does he want to reject that in the end? Uh, after his daughter uh, dies of the plague, after he thinks the reform is going down the toilet, uh, after he writes terrible things about Catholics, about other Protestant reformers, exactly. why does he move towards the Jews in such a way? What, what, what were the conditions that caused him to change our minds? Because what I want my students and what I do for myself is ask, how is my mind changed? How are my views changed? What are the conditions that prompt us to switch almost 180 degrees on some issues? Uh, what, what's going on there that prompts that in that in us? And are we aware of that when it's taking place? Exactly. Much of the time, yeah. no. But right. to me, that's the thing. I I uh, that's another dimension of why I want my students to actually study his major change on the Jews, and then to recognize <laughs> that at his death, he had no idea that 400 years later, mm -hmm. uh, those very writings would be invoked exactly. in a deeply racist way rather than a theological or religious right. way. And I would echo that, that there's no direct line from Martin Luther to Hitler. Yeah. That was a trend for some historians in the maybe 1970s. And I think it's just largely rejected now yeah, that you cannot, you cannot make the leap that, well, here's Martin Luther. And so it makes sense that there's a Hitler and it's in Germany that there's a Holocaust. Yeah. The, the policies yeah. are thought up. How do you go about presenting Luther's anti-Semitism in your classes? And what information and context is important to include in that process? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I think the one thing I would say, first of all, is that the intellectual tradition that emerged in Lutheran higher education has always been our ally, because in one sense, it was Lutheran scholars who invented the scientific and critical study of history itself. Mm -hmm. uh, they certainly did that with the Bible as well. Uh, but in terms of history, that's been pretty important. So it's not to teach either rah-rah for Martin Luther or consign him to the dustbin or toilet of history, it is to take those writings and ask, why were they written in the time in which they were written? So in my classes, we study actually the history of German anti-Semitism and place him within that context. And then what in particular drove him, who initially was very favorable to Jews? Of course, the whole point for him was he thought I've made this big discovery that's been <laughs> hidden from everybody yeah. for the last 500 years. And now they'll convert. Right? And now, right, right. Now, now once, they, once they hear the truth and yes. see the light, they will be so incredibly happy to become 
Christian in the Lutheran way. But of course, most Jews said, no, we're we're happy being Jewish. We don't want to become Christian. And that's where you see this turn taking place. huh? But it's also, uh, it's a turn that takes place when he starts reading literature written by Jewish converts to Christianity and does not apply the critical skills to that particular set of texts that he did to his own study of the Bible or to the Christian tradition or to history, that he takes in these salacious lies about the Jews and accepts them as truth. So we we have to see, in other words, the context context in which it emerged rather than to simply say, uh, let's overlook it, which has been a big part of Lutheran historiography, or... um, Let's only focus on Let's the only, negative. That's, only focus that's on that's the not negative. Useful either, yeah, but. so it's a, a mixed bag. And I, I think, I mean, when I teach, I almost do this a very similar thing. I take it even further back and place Martin Luther in the tradition of the Catholic Church, yeah. since he was a member of the Catholic Church yeah. before he had his great insight. And so I try to place it into the category also in the larger context of traditional Catholic anti-Semitism as well. Um, and so that we were looking at how he's been influenced by his involvement as uh, really a fanatical monk, right, in a monastery, uh, searching for his own deliverance so that he's guaranteed that he's not going to hell right. as well. And so we put it into that context. And I usually have students do a little bit of reading of um, his first work concerning the Jews and and his first work about on Jesus Jesus Christ was was born born a Jew. Jew. Uh, And then 20 years later, the concerning the Jews and their lies. And we talk about this kind of evolution or devolution in his thought. Um, And again, the context, right, of what's happening in the 1540s that wasn't happening necessarily in the Mm -hmm. 1520s that would help him Mm -hmm. to make that transition. And also just the human side of it. He's angry and frustrated, right, because he is absolutely convinced that he knows the way to heaven. That's right. And he's absolutely determined to share that with everyone else to save their souls. And here is a group of people, the Jews, who are steadfastly and stubbornly rejecting that. Yeah, I think in, in the Luther seminar I teach, we, uh, I'll raise you one. Okay. We actually <laughs> we actually go back to the Gospel of John. Oh, yes. Yep. And, and that's the Gospel mm. in which the Jews as a whole exactly, are become. placed in a very, very negative light. Yep. But what I want my students to understand is what was going on when John was writing <laughs> that Gospel that actually led to this kind of the light is over here with Jesus. The darkness is over here with Jews. And once you begin to understand that context, right. then what he's writing begins to make more sense. You don't have to agree with it by any means. Exactly. But, but you can see that it's an, actually an argument among different groups of Jews, Christian Jews right. against rabbinic Jews. It's an in-house argument. But once people no longer have that memory, all they have is the text, and what they see without that historical memory or context is this darkness and light, which plays out disastrously. Exactly. It's the black and white of it yeah. all. So it's. I just finished writing a, a book that will be, hopefully be a textbook for students studying the Holocaust, uh, but it's about traditions of anti-Semitism, language and rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And so I start back with the rise of Christianity yeah. and we look at the Gospel of John and how it's become the Jews are the Christ killers, all of them, yeah. not just in this historical moment in time, who was in that 
crowd scene calling out for the crucifixion and we kind of move forward in time and that that's how i usually teach the class where i start back in the ancient world because i want students to understand the long tradition of Mm anti-semitic language and how that comes to be accepted again without that historical memory that people just say oh i've heard that about jews that must be that must be true maybe not the jew that i know as my friend but but the other Jews, I, I bet that that story is true about them. And I think that that's uh, something that helps students to understand why Hitler can then stand up and deliver a speech in the 1920s and 30s and not really shock a whole lot of people when he says anti-Semitic remarks. No, They've no, heard that before yeah. over and over again. And right? especially when you have at Nuremberg where the rallies oh, were held, yes. where you have the work on the Jews and their lives yes. by Luther, actually in a brand new edition – and it's framed in this glorious, I mean, very ornate <laughs> right. uh, display case at the front of the Catholic cathedral. Yeah. And in front of that is Hitler standing, spewing <laughs> exactly. out against the Jews. So it's this For isn't people, a surprise. Makes, right. And, and it's not upsetting. Right. And people say, well, I don't have anything personally against the Jews. But, you know, look how a lot people have been saying this about them. There's the Martin Luther writing right there in the case. Yeah. And here's now Hitler in the present day, and he's saying the same thing. So they must be on to something, right? They must be correct. And uh, I think that's really fascinating to students in particular to see mm-hmm. this long tradition and kind of see how these myths and legends and stereotypes about Jews have all kind of come together to culminate in the figure of Hitler uh, to be able to, he draws very astutely on all of this different language, knowing that he's appealing to a German predominantly evangelical Lutheran audience when he's speaking. That's the bulk of the German population. Catholics are a minority. Jews are an even smaller minority. Which makes the uh, current political season quite interesting. (laughs) Yes. In terms of the kind of language that uh, political figures who are running for office Mm -hmm. will use in terms of the stigmatization of different groups within a nation. My hope is that my students who I, I trust are learning some of the critical skills to ask simple questions like, you've made this claim. Right. Where's the evidence, evidence. to support exactly. that claim? And what are the compelling reasons? I call that critical thinking. Exactly. Right? Right. So it's not just something we do in the classroom. Right. It's a life lesson. Exactly. Someone's going to ask you to marry them. Do you have evidence that this would be a good thing to get into (laughs) or the person who's going to ask for your vote? Exactly. What what actually would be the policies that would flow out of someone that stigmatizes people? And that's usually what I I actually just come right out and tell students at the very beginning and then remind them at the end of the semester that, yes, we're going to be learning an enormous amount of detail about Mm. Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, death camps and but many of those things will fade from their memory, that, and I don't expect them to memorize dates and things mm-hmm. like that. But what I would ideally want them to understand is how language can be used to divide people and that they can then extrapolate from the what they've learned about how Hitler was so successful in ostracizing and bringing about the social death 
of this minority population. Mm -hmm. Jews in Germany in 1933 that would have self-identified as Jews were about one-tenth of one percent of the total German population. That figures out to be about 525,000 Jews out of a country of about 60 to 65 million people. Mm -hmm. Um, They're a very small minority, and yet Hitler makes them the scapegoat of every single problem that average German people might be experiencing or witnessing. And I want students to be able to think about how he is so successful in making people the outsiders within their own communities, isolating them and bringing about what historians call their social death, right? That you don't, you don't think about Jews anymore. You think there is a Jewish problem. But I want students to be able to say, yeah, that's what happened in Nazi Germany. But where is that kind of language that's so destructive and divisive happening around us today? And do I fall into that category as well? When I pick up and and repeat a stereotype about some other minority, am I doing the same type of thing, making people isolated from their own communities? Well, this is where I think, especially in study, not not so much the study of the Holocaust, of Mm -hmm. of Jews only, but you could include in the Holocaust uh, other groups that Hitler targeted as well, which would be homosexuals, gypsies, the mentally ill, the the mentally ill, communists, right. The The list goes on and on on. and on. But all of these groups, uh, this is what I want uh, our students to understand, given our educational mission about care for others, their communities, and the earth. That piece is, you don't get off the hook on that as a mature responsible citizen Mm -hmm. in the world, because those are all groups that were perceived as being vulnerable and weak. Mm -hmm. Do you have any responsibility for them if you're not vulnerable and weak? If you're not part of that particular target group. Do you have any responsibility for that? Are you just going to be silent? And if you are, then you're playing into the very thing that allowed this monstrous regime to come to power. So with that responsibility and the spirit of Luther's activism in mind, how is the Reformation still relevant now, you know, 500 years later? Is Luther's notion of reforming as relevant today as it was way back in 1517? <laughs> that's a that's a big a big question. Well, no, I, but I would say I would say we hear that term all the time, tort reform. Right. Uh, we hear it uh, in terms of reform of education. Right. Always... Uh, there are many, many, many uh, dimensions of life. Uh, that are always in need of reform, of transformation. So it's not an alien term at all right. to Americans. Uh, at least I hope it's not. I hope not. <laughs> and it's uh, it's not an alien term uh, to a university. Why do I say that? Neither of us is engaged in the maintenance of knowledge. That's not what we're about here. Just mm-hmm. passing on what people learned maybe a hundred years ago, were actually engaged through research in the advance of knowledge, in the advance of knowledge, the advance of method, the advance of all of that is about reforming, reforming what has already gone before us. So while there can be continuity in a discipline, whether it's chemistry or whether it's history or whether it's Bible, whatever it is, sociology, there is always going to be uh, the impulse to reform or transform in light of current need or in light of new knowledge. How are we going to meet that That's the essence of the whole historical profession, right, is to say, here's how prior historians interpreted events 
And now I'm rereading those same documents. And through my understanding of the world, I'm reinterpreting it and reforming it and reshaping it and then delivering it in lectures uh, to students. Right. And so and that's kind of the essence that, that life is about change and always hopefully seeking to improve life. Uh, and that and that's definitely a, a common word, reforming and, and using this over and over again. How does the legacy and again, the sort of spirit of the Reformation influence and inform the core elements of Lutheran higher education? Well, I would say I would say the first gift of Lutheran education is questioning mm-hmm. uh, the ability to question what everybody takes as normal. Uh, what people perceive as a status quo. That's how it really, in one sense, got started with Luther. It was mm-hmm. questioning what he was taught by both his culture and his religion, which provoked enormous anxiety in him. And so the ability to question, to me, is a really, uh, it is one of the greatest gifts of Lutheran education. And to uh, allow our students the freedom, that's where academic freedom come in, comes in. It just doesn't pertain to protecting Beth and me right. from censorship of our scholarship because someone might not just like it. It also right. pertains to our students. They have the freedom to ask questions mm-hmm. that the high school cliques in which they were formed would never allow them to do that. So here, to to cultivate in the classroom, you have the freedom to ask difficult questions and have no one slap you on their hand, censor you, or tell you to shut up. That's That can be an amazing thing. Now, it takes time to actually allow that to develop, right? right? The trust has to be there that the students know that I can go out on a limb and raise my hand and ask this question that might upset some of my peers right. in the class, it might upset the professor, but it's not going to affect my grade. That's right. Right. They have to get over that hurdle yeah. and become, this is a, a, a nice a safe zone where they can raise these questions and really be challenged, right? That they might come out by the end of the semester thinking the, completely differently than the way that they started the semester. I've said before, there is an invisible wall around the university. Right. Uh, you can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't, can't taste it. But every day you walk onto the campus, you walk through that invisible wall. Right. And that invisible wall is the protection the university offers mm-hmm. for students, faculty, and staff to ask really, really tough questions and not kill each other exactly. in the process that's of right. doing it, which is a... It, that it's okay to disagree, uh, right? It's a trick okay. these days, right? Right, Because right. exactly. uh, we live in so a highly polarized... polarized. Yep. Yep. There you go. Wow. <laughs> We're in sync, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so I mean, questioning and freedom, those are, those I think play into oh. how we teach. But it's also the way and what we, that's the thing, the very thing we want our students to be able to do rather than say, oh, I received a lot of infor- in- interesting information from his class or her class. Right. And it makes no difference whatsoever exactly. in my life. And now I'll go out and do whatever the same thing well I please. did before. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I think in our heart, we we always want to kind of transform the students a little bit, you know, where we take them at the beginning of the semester and and work with them so that they do think for themselves, right, that they can say, oh, that I just heard something on the news, and it made me think of your class. 
And it's something that you said, and now I want to explore the current event much more clearly. And and it, sometimes they email you, right, that I, I thought of you because I saw this article, and it might not have anything to do with the Holocaust, but it's something that I was talking to them about, about the uses of language and rhetoric, um, and they they are still thinking about it. And that's the best reward for, for me as a teacher to say that, you know, I'm still some of the things that I try to instill in them are still floating around in their head because I know they're going to forget the vast bulk of, you know, things that they might memorize for an essay or a test. Uh, that I want them to to walk out saying, I know how to read a document critically, uh, to, to go through and really think about what are the sources of this article. And they can apply that to everything in their current lives, not just in a history class and like, oh, now we're done with history you know, flip a switch and go out and do something different. Although I think you and I, uh, all of us, we need to do a better job at helping students recognize that this is something that's not only an academic method, right. but it really is a life it's, skill. It, exactly. Uh, right. Because it keeps coming up again in oh. life all the time. You're being asked to do something, to vote a particular way, to make a decision. How do you make that kind of decision? Exactly. You know, unless you're just going to be wild about exactly. it, right? Yeah, you know, whatever I feel at the moment, <laughs> yeah, in a haphazard way. Well, and I think, uh, and related to Chris's uh, question, another element that I would add in that I think is very unique uh, that I referred to earlier is the component of service um, at a Lutheran in- institution. I mean, it really is. Uh, just for me, a fascinating experience to have students who really do uh, take advantage of PLU, study abroad, whether it's J-term or it's for the whole semester, that they've gone out into the world and they've seen different cultures on the ground. They've met people from different parts of the world. And sometimes that can be very upsetting and challenging for them too, right? That they see things that they didn't even know existed before. Uh, And I think that that's part of uh, at least when I'm teaching about the Holocaust, I try to talk to them about uh, guilt and complicity and the bystander, right? To Do you want to be the bystander who sees bad things happening and then says, well, it doesn't affect me personally. It doesn't affect my circle around me. So I don't need to be concerned about it. I don't need to do anything about it. And I want students to rethink that position and sometimes that works, and for some students, I think it really resonates with them, that they, they want to go somewhere, they want to be change in the world for something positive. Um, and I, I think you can't get a better reward as a teacher than to have a student come back years later and say, you know, I, I took that to heart, I took that yeah. message, and I went yeah. out there. I think, too, I think we're good at attracting students who have an other orientation, right. an orientation to others. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to say something good about Luther, one one thing I emphasize in some of the classes is his reform of social assistance mm-hmm. or social welfare, right. um, which was democratized. It's what we understand today as public welfare, right. but it began really in the 16th century in these tiny right. little towns uh, of Germany. But to ask students the questions around why should a society engage in social welfare exactly. for, and, and then to take them abroad to actually see how people live so differently than most of us do here. Mm-hmm. Here's the point about the liberal arts. It's intended to be liberating, right. to open up 
one experience from something that much it might have been much much smaller than when they first came right. to the university. So how are we engaged in the art of enlarging one's worldview, exactly. especially when we face critical questions, uh, gross injustice in the world, suffering in the world? Right. Are we do we have any commitment to that? those realities and does our education in any way right. move us in that direction or does it come back to that it's just about comfortable me and exactly my, my one little wild and precious life exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to use a phrase we sometimes hear here the theme of this october's pow heller conference for holocaust education is women in the holocaust how did that topic come about and what will an exploration of it include when i first arrived here there's already the eight uh eight years of the Powell-Heller Conference on Holocaust Education. And I went through a lot of the, the documents, and I thought, boy, you know, there's so many great topics that we can kind of try to tackle. Some of them have already been done. And it just occurred to me that it would be, I think, a very interesting uh, experience to talk specifically about women and gender. And particularly because for many decades at the end of World War II, most historians were men. They talked to male survivors of the Holocaust. And so most of our perceptions of what the Holocaust actually was and what living in a concentration camp and trying to survive in a camp was like are from a male perspective. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but we want to acknowledge that there's also 50% of the world's population are women. And uh, we want to kind of specifically focus in on how women's experiences, because of their gender, were slightly different from that of men. And I think that that's because it's relatively new, sad to say, in the field of, of historical mm -hmm. research. Most mm -hmm. historians of the Holocaust are probably many years behind in, for, in the field of gender studies and so forth. And it really has only been maybe in the last decade, maybe 15 years or so, that we've had really fantastic Holocaust historians beginning to try to explore in what ways were the female experiences similar and what ways were they different from the male experience. Uh, so I think that that is just in and of itself a fascinating question. And so the way that I thought about having this conference was not just to present women as victims. I think that that would be doing uh, the female population an injustice. And so our conference is going to start off on a fairly controversial uh, position. We're going to start off with women as perpetrators in the Nazi regime. And it's really just been in the last five years or so that books are being written about female guards at concentration camps and roles of women uh, as the secretarial staff in the camps and, and so forth. And we're going to progress through there. We're going to have a special section on women uh, as victims of sexual violence, but we're also going to have uh, women as survivors. We're going to have a Holocaust survivor come to speak uh, to students and to the, the general community. I just find that that experience is so important that if we really want to capture that historical moment in time of the Holocaust, it's not enough uh, to leave women out of the picture. And so it's not to do a hierarchy of suffering and say women suffered more than men. I, none, I'm not interested in any of that. I just want students to think about 
what might have been different for women in these situations. Women had an advantage as uh, working as, as resistance fighters because you could be a Jewish woman and really go undetected as a resistance fighter. Uh, because there's no physical marking that marches a Jew. Whereas no if you're if, if, no circumcision. So if you were a Jewish man and the Nazis suspected that you were a Jew in hiding, trying to pass as an Aryan, all they had to do was pull your pants down. If you're circumcised, you're a Jew. Because most European men in the 1930s and 40s, if they were Christian, would not have been circumcised. So for women, there are certain advantages to being female that don't exist for male. And so there's there's just so much richness and so much uh, material that's out there that people might not be aware of that I felt very strongly that this would be uh, the kind of conference that I would want as the first conference that I was able to organize here at Pacific Lutheran. Thank you very much to our guests today, Drs. Samuel Torben and Beth Greek-Palele. You can learn more about the legacy of Lutheran higher education at PLU in the latest issue of Resolute, which is online at plu.edu resolute. The Powell Heller Conference for Holocaust Education is October 15th through 17th at PLU. More information on the conference is available at plu.edu slash holocaustconference. Lastly, for more PLU podcasts, subscribe to PLU Audio on iTunes or visit plu.edu audio. Thanks very much for listening.